This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. In today's episode, bro is going to see how the expert predictions for 2018 actually panned out. And forget about New Year's resolutions. I'm playing the much longer game with advice to help you avoid having regrets on your deathbed. <laughs> we have fun. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, bro, this is the time of year when people start thinking about New Year's resolutions. Or, at the very least, they wake up from the fog of the holidays and realize that they spent way too much money or gained too much weight. So, then, roughly, apparently, two-thirds of us make New Year's resolutions. Do you make New Year's resolutions? I do. Typically? You do? Oh, yeah. What's your, what's your batting average for keeping them? Oh, probably 50-50. <laughs> yeah. and, and let me guess, most of your New Year's resolutions have to do with your health or money. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Right. So, that's not unusual. Most are along the lines of eat healthier, get more exercise, save more money. And then, of course, we completely abandon them around February. Yeah. But, but what if we take the longer view and see what people truly regret in their old age? And then... We'll work backwards with steps we can take to avoid being truly miserable after having lived a wasted life. <laughs> so let's head to the research. Let's do it. We're going to go to the Legacy Project out of Cornell. I feel like you've mentioned the Legacy Project on the podcast before, it but maybe familiar. not. It's so it's led by uh, some researchers out of Cornell, and basically they gathered responses from 1,500 people over the age of 65 about all kinds of things, including their most common regrets in life. So here are, in no particular order, the eight most common regrets that the wise elder people in our life have. Ready? I'm ready. All right. Number one. Not being careful enough when choosing a life partner. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> so, hopefully, this is getting better um, as a society. Hopefully, young men and women feel like they have more options and that your 20s aren't just a big game of musical chairs where you got to choose the closest one when the music stops. Um, one person that they talked to for their research said that it was better to not get married than to marry the wrong person. Yeah, that's probably true. And I think we are getting better. Isn't the divorce rate going down? Yeah, I think that's it is. true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we talked about that in the past, about yeah. how millennials are better at marriage than baby boomers. Good job, right. millennials. Hey, way to go, millennials. All right, number two. Second, uh, another regret that people have, not resolving a family squabble. Mm. So, some of the most unhappy people in their old age, researchers said, were those that had a rift with a family member, like a child or a sibling or a parent, and never reconciled. Oh, yeah, that's and that's sad. That's that is sad. sad. All right, number three, putting off saying how you feel. Apparently, not expressing love frequently enough was a common regret of older men. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's a generational thing. I feel Maybe. like today's man is a little more sensitive and effusive, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I love you guys. Thank you. <laughs> I love you guys, too. Aww. And you, too, listeners. I think you guys are, are pretty okay. Thanks. All right, number four. Not traveling enough. Some people chose to wait until retirement to travel, but the researchers said that putting it off means that your health could have already started yes, failing that's very before true. you've had a chance to do your lifelong dream of a trip to Italy or whatever. Yeah. So many of the older people said that they should have taken um, a trip sooner um, and that travel should have been more important than, like, say, a kitchen remodel. Mm -hmm. um, nor does a travel even have to be the cost of a kitchen remodel. The older people they talked to said you should just get out there more and just travel. Yeah, good. Fifth common regret, spending too much time worrying. 
Apparently, many of the people they talked to regretted about anxiety from worrying over things that never happened or they didn't have control over. The general advice was just stop worrying. But, but that's the, so easier said than that's done. Why, but that's why they didn't happen, because I worried about it. Right. If I didn't worry about it, it would have happened. Right, right. So for those of you who are like, okay, I'm ready to stop worrying, I guess you can go back and listen to our episode on cognitive behavioral therapy, because I don't know how you just, like literally the advice was just don't worry so much, as if it's like that easy. Right. Yeah, whatever. All right, number six, not being honest. Hmm. Apparently, lying and deceit gnaws away at you slowly but surely, and then there you are on your deathbed thinking about how you were a lying liar who lied. And you're about to be judged. Yes. Yes. Number seven, not taking enough career chances. So people they talked to were in favor of taking more risk when it comes to your career. They regretted opportunities that they passed on or weren't brave enough to try. Um, And so this one could potentially haunt me because I feel like it's awfully cozy here at The Motley Fool. It is, and I am actually in a room with two men who have been working at the same place for twenty years. Twenty, I'll be twenty years next year. Yeah, so that one might touch a chord here. It's It's a warm bath. It's really hard to get out. It is a really warm (laughs) bath. That's true. All right, and number eight, not surprisingly, of of course, when you're older and everything hurts, you're going to regret not taking as good care of your body. So when you're young, you're thinking that smoking or eating poorly or not exercising, okay, fine, whatever, I'll die a little sooner. But the problem is, is that you don't get to die. Thanks to the marvels of modern medicine, you get to suffer through years of chronic disease. So enjoy that. So none of them were finding, none of them were like, oh, I wish I had saved more for retirement or anything like that. No, but I don't know that there's really a definitive study on the area of what people regret in life because there was lots of books that people wrote after having lived after having had a career in hospice care or something like that. So there is this is there's probably room for more um, rigorous research in the area of regret. Right. I have read uh, a recent study that we published uh, on full.com about in terms of money, what are, what are the biggest regrets and one of them is I wish I had saved more money. I mean, one of the biggest Determinants, we've talked about this before, of a happy retirement is number one, health, but then financial security. And it's hard to enjoy your golden years if you're kind of racked with financial anxiety. Right. Well, most of, like, that, and that's, that falls in line with New Year's resolutions, right? Those short term, like, the, those decisions of, I want to save more, I want to be healthier, I want to do this. Whereas a lot of the life regrets had a lot to do with, like, relationships. And like relationships with family, like not being honest, so family squabbles and not choosing the right life partner. A lot of the lifelong regrets actually had to do more with your relationships with people than your relationships with money or your health. Although health is in there too. So, is your recommendation for people as you think about your resolutions for this year to just think of those things? Did anything sort of Ring a bell, strike a chord. See, I see. I have in here in my notes. What's my takeaway? Because bro is such a stickler for a takeaway. <laughs> so yes, as I was naming those things, if any one of those single regrets made you catch your breath, or your heart skip a beat, or you were like, oh, yeah, okay, all right, even doing just one thing in the coming year that could get at that to help you have a happier 2019 and beyond. So, is there someone that you could bury the hatchet with? Is there a trip you could plan? Flossing. None of these things are necessarily easy, but they aren't all dependent on building or changing habits, which, as we know, is really, really hard. Um, 
you know, one well said, I love you could apparently make a difference for the rest of your life. But also definitely floss every day. All right. And bro, that's what's up. Hey, bro. Happy New Year. (laughs) And Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, At the time of taping this, uh, things in the world, I would say, are a bit unstable. The markets are unstable. The economy is, I don't know. Does anyone ever really know? That's that is a good point. Does anyone does, ever period. I should have just yes. Does anyone ever really know? Not t- rhetorical. Not rhetorical. But here's the problem. Much of investing in financial planning does rely on a little bit of knowledge. In fact, a little bit of foreknowledge. In fact, you have to make basically a prediction. When you're buying one stock versus the thousands of others, you are predicting that that is going to be the better investment. If you're deciding to put a little bit more in international or US stocks, you're trying to make a prediction of which is going to be the better bet. The whole point of retirement planning is doing something so that when that time comes, 10, 20, 30 years from now, you're going to have enough money. So you have to make some predictions. There's a problem, and that is humans kind of stink at predictions. (laughs) (laughs) And I find it kind of interesting. I'm I'm a bit of a collector of predictions. I even have a folder in my Evernote because partially I want to see who's particularly good at predictions. Partially because when people make predictions, they have some interesting points to make in supporting the predictions. But the bottom line is, generally people aren't very good at it. One of my favorite examples I think I've used on the show before was one of those end-of-the-year articles in Business Week. It was the end of 2007. They asked six highly paid, finely attired Wall Street types how they thought the Dow would end in 2008. Mm -hmm. Now, at the point... The Dow was a little over 13,000. Every single one of these people expected the Dow go, to go up about an average to 15,000. What happened in 2008? Not good. Not good. It dropped to about 8,000. So a 40% drop. Worst year for the stock market since the Great Depression. And it's one of those glaring examples of how you have people who have all the resources that you supposedly could ask for to make these predictions, and they all got it wrong. Uh, and there are plenty of studies that have looked over bigger periods of time. One is uh, a study that was done by CXO Advisory. They called it their guru grades. So what they did from 2005 to 2012, they collected 6,582 forecasts about the U.S. stock market from 68 experts. And they didn't even just look at the, the predictions from that time period. They went back to their archives. So the oldest prediction went back as far as 1998. What was the average guru accuracy? 47. Is that actually what they call it? Guru accuracy? Guru accuracy, 47.4%. Oh, wow. Essentially a coin flip. Uh, A little worse than a A coin flip. A little worse than a coin flip. The most accurate person was right 68% of the time. So still wrong one out of every three times. Worse, by the way, an accuracy rate of 20%. Uh, yet this person still has a money management firm and still is in the media making predictions. Wow. It's quite, it's quite remarkable. So, once again, we're here at the end of the year. You are probably reading all kinds of articles about what 2019 is like. I always like to take this opportunity to look back at some of the predictions from 2018 to see what happened. And there were a few that jumped out at me. Couple that were highlighted in an article on Market Watch by Sean Langlois. I don't know if I got his name right there. Highlighted two people in particular. One is Ray Dalio. He is um, considered 
one of the greatest investors of all time. We had talked about that in a pre- previous episode. He runs the biggest hedge fund in the world. world. Uh, and at that time of the year, he said investors are, quote, going to feel pretty stupid if they sit around in cash in 2018. He expected a pretty big rally, partially because of the jolt coming to the economy from the tax cuts. Of course, as we sit here, we are recording this before the end of the year, but as we sit right now, the stock market is down for the year. Now, he is his fund itself has actually made money this year. But again, another really smart guy thinking things are going to be pretty good this year for the stock market. It didn't turn out that way. Another is Bill Miller, who um, was famous for beating the S&P 500 15 years in a row. Unheard of. Hmm. Unheard of. He got undone with the Great Recession and that his performance tanked considerably, like horribly. He recovered a little bit and his record has been mixed since then. He predicted at the beginning of 2018 that we'd have another year like 2013, which is when the stock market went up 30%. Didn't turn out that way. Now, some folks did think get things partially right, like Jeff Gunlack, who's considered sort of the bond king. He co-founded uh, Double Line Capital, um, runs one of the biggest bond funds out there. Very smart fellow. Predicted that stocks would go up at the beginning of the year and then end the year down, which was right. Um, he predicted that Bitcoin had peaked. He was right. He also predicted that one of the best things to invest in for 2018 would be commodities. He was wrong. Mm. Commodities actually have performed worse than stocks so far this year. So you can get some things right, maybe not everything right. And that's part of just investing. You're just not going to get it all right. So recently, CNBC's Thomas Frank published an article in which he reviewed the predictions of 13 of the biggest firms on Wall Street what they were saying for 2018, what they're predicting for 2019. And the most accurate for last year was also the most bearish. That was Morgan Stanley's Michael Wilson. He basically predicted that the S&P 500 would make just a little bit of money. Actually, it lost money, but he was still the most accurate. (laughs) So you might ask, what are these people expecting for 2019? Well, he is also, again, the most bearish. He doesn't think the S&P 500 will actually make much money at all in 2019. On average, these folks think that the market will earn about 15% in 2019. Oh, that's not that's not bad. It's not bad. So they were they are predicting that I mean we are currently in the longest bull market in history. They're predicting that we have another year left of it. Will it matter? I think we've already established we actually don't think that they, anyone can really predict that. What I thought was most interesting, what I think is most worth paying attention to is a little bit more pessimism mm. has crept into these prediction, these sort of articles, and these every firm often will put out some outlook report on what they see happening in the year ahead. There's much more pessimism in them this year for a couple of reasons that I think are pretty valid. Number one, um, the Fed is still raising rates, probably will slow down, not raise them as much in 2019 as people expected, but still probably rates are going to go up. That's usually it does. The whole intention is to slow down the economy to keep inflation in check, and that's probably what will happen. A couple of other interesting things that are generally indicators of a slowing economy, if not recession indicators, one of them being the inverted yield curve. Are you familiar with this at all? Oh, it's my favorite it's yield curve. It's your favorite thing. Anyway, so generally the speaking... The inverted yield curve is the way to go every time. <laughs> except that the yield curve, it, yield curve is inverted every time before a recession. So it's so not it's a it, bad it's a bad thing. sign. It's my favorite bad sign is really what, there is what you I'm go. Saying. So basically you should get paid more 
to buy a bond with a longer duration than a shorter duration. You should get paid more to buy a 10-year bond than a two-year bond because sure. you're tying up your money for a longer married time, yeah. period of time. That's a normal yield curve. It goes up and to the right. Oh, okay. But sometimes the yield curve becomes flat, meaning you don't really get paid much more to go out further. And sometimes you actually get paid more for a shorter term treasury or a bond. Usually it's looking at treasuries. And that briefly has just started to happen. Mm. So currently you actually get paid more to invest in a two-year treasury than you do in a three- or five-year treasury. That's generally not a good sign. What people most look at, though, is either the difference between the three-month treasury and the 10-year or the two-year treasury and the 10-year. That's still slightly positive, but it's unquestionably a sign that things are slowing down. There have been some false signals with an inverted yield curve, but every recession in modern times has either been preceded by an inverted yield curve or it happened right around the same time. Another interesting thing that I read in a report from Schwab was that another indication of a slowing economy is when the unemployment rate and the inflation rate get to be very similar. So, after a recession, unemployment unemployment rate is high because people have lost their jobs, and inflation rate is low because businesses had to cut their prices to get people to buy stuff. As the economy recovers, though, the unemployment rate drops, inflation rate ticks up, and when they get to a point where they're very close, that's usually not a great sign. Hmm. And the difference between the two now is only about one, one and a half percent. So it's certain things like that. And another signal that I think is interesting now is that household ownership of stocks is near an all-time high. Really? Yeah. So we're about at the same amount as 2007, right before the Great Recession. And we're only slightly behind where we were right before the dot-com crash. The reason it's a bearish signal is because Basically, households have put in as much as they can in the stock market. They don't have as much on the sidelines to put into the stock market. Doesn't mean the market's going to crash tomorrow. Doesn't even mean it's going to crash in a year or two. But it's a sign that people are highlighting as things like, you know what, it might be time to be a little bit more cautious, a little bit more defensive. So, all that said, given that we don't really know what's going to happen, but there are some certain signs on the horizon. Here are some predictions that I'm mostly sure I'll be right about. (laughs) Brave man. Brave man. Number one is, you have to make a prediction. So, regardless of whether you're going to be accurate, you have to make some predictions. And when that comes to retirement planning, one of the key predictions you have to make is, what is my portfolio going to earn? Generally speaking, most people expect Below average returns. I particularly like Vanguard's like annual market outlook and their guidance for a globally diversified portfolio for stocks over the next decade earn on average four and a half to six and a half percent a year. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Hopefully it'll be do, do better, but it's better to assume something like that. For bonds, current interest rates are always the best indicator of future returns, at least for the next five, 10 years. Right now, so that's about 3%. But there's something a little different going on in the bond market now. If you want your bonds to be particularly safe, you want them to make money when the stock market goes down, you should stick with treasuries. The more you go into corporate bonds, the more you're taking on risk, and they may not hold up quite as well. So, for example, during 2008, when the stock market dropped 37%, 
the Vanguard intermediate term corporate bond fund lost about 7%. So not horrible, but you lost money. But there's some evidence that corporate bonds are actually even riskier now than they were then. And that is because the bond market is broken up into basically two big segments. Investment grade, that means they're rated BBB or above by Moody's and S&P and Fitch and those folks. BBB and above is investment grade. Below that is speculative grade called junk. 15, 20 years ago, when you looked at the whole investment grade market, maybe 25 to 30% of it was BBB, basically a notch above junk. Today, half the investment grade market is just a hair away from junk. Oh, really? So the corporate bond market nowadays is riskier than it's been in the last 10, 15, 20 years. So as you look at your portfolio, if you're choosing to invest in bonds or bond funds, you have to take that into account. Take a look at how much exposure you have to the bond, the corporate bonds. What's if you look at a bond fund, you can look at Morningstar and see its average credit quality. If it's BBB, close to that, you've got a pretty risky bond fund, and you just have to be prepared that, that probably will go down if we do, if and when we do go into a full recession. You better beware. Right. But, you, but I need another B in there. There Nuts. you go. That was good. Yeah, it wasn't. And as for cash, we've talked about before. These days, you should be able to earn 2%. You just got to put in a little effort. So, put that all together. If you have a portfolio of cash, bonds, and stocks, you should only assume you're going to be earning, you know, four to five or 6% a year as you do your retirement plan contributions. Or it could be also if you're calculating whether you're saving enough for like college or something like that. So, I think that's a reasonable expectation. Number two prediction. Saving more increases your chances of success. Okay, I know that's not very exciting. <laughs> Way to go out on a limb there, bro. Know, that's thank con- you very much. controversial hot take with yes. Robert Brokamp. <laughs> uh, but the bottom line is, there's nothing that will help you through a recession or economic downturn than having more cash in the bank or more in your portfolio. And the good news, as we talked about before, in 2019, Retirement account contribution limits go up. Nineteen thousand for four hundred one ks, with another six thousand if you're fifty or older. IRAs go up to six thousand, with another one thousand. So, take advantage of those higher contribution limits and save more. Number three, your tax bill or your refund will be very different than the previous year. So, this was the first year of the new tax law. If you didn't change anything, you're going to get a bigger refund. Chances are. Though there is a good 10 to 15% of people that actually going to have a higher tax bill and they're either going to get a smaller refund or they're going to owe some money. So, this is particularly important this year, I think, to get your taxes done early to know your situation. If you're getting a refund, get that money as soon as you can. If you owe money, you don't have to file your taxes then. You can wait until April 15th, but you got to start building up that money so you have that cash on hand. But it's also important to know okay, this is the tax situation. Taxes are not going to change very much in 2019 unless you do something different. So it's better to start earlier in the year to adjust your withholding. So if you're going to get a refund, you get that money sooner. Or if you're going to owe money, you want to make sure you adjust your withholding because if you owe too much, you'll have to pay some sort of penalty. Number four, another boring one. Paying down debt is a guaranteed winner. With interest rates going up, debt is more expensive. Credit card, the interest rate on credit cards are at all time highs now. It's crazy. All time highs? All time highs. Like what? Like, like what 17 or 18 percent for oh, a regular card. But then when you get into like the store cards, it's like 25 percent. Jeez. But the same, it's also the same mortgage rates have gone up, auto loan rates have gone up. 
Um, so it's better to pay that off. It's a guaranteed winner. Um, it also gives you more flexibility. One of the issues, what happens with a re- during a recession is, if you're retired, your portfolio goes down, or if you're working, you might lose your job. The less debt you have, the more you can weather that type of storm. If you're retired, your portfolio and your portfolio goes down. One of the best things you could do is just leave your portfolio alone. And if you don't have a lot of debt, you have a lot more flexibility with your budget. If, on the other hand, you have a credit card bill, a car bill, and a mortgage, your portfolio is down. You can't hold off. You have to pay those bills. And the priority of credit card, car, mortgage. mortgage. Right, exactly. And number five, you're always better off looking for ways to enhance your human capital. That is basically your value to your customers. And everyone has a customer. Obviously, if you're self-employed, you have customers. But even if you work for somebody, you have customers. Your boss, the people who run the company, your colleagues. I think it's important to always be looking for ways to show that you are valuable to the people who are your customers. Because what happens during a recession? Number one, people either get laid off or people, you don't, people aren't as, employers aren't as generous with raises. The more value you can demonstrate to the people you work with or the people who are your customers, more likely you're going to be better off. What are you intending to do to improve your human capital in 2019? Uh, honestly? Yes. Okay. No, I want you to lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually have begun a few discussions with people about how I can increase the engagement on the services I work on, the full, particularly the rule your retirement service. Mm-hmm. So I've had a few meetings about that. I have another meeting on Friday. Like, what are the things we can do to make it more valuable to the people who subscribe? Cool. Yep. I'm glad you had an answer. That would have been <laughs> awkward had you not. <laughs> so when you were looking at all these prognosticators, were there many that were kind of like a, a broken clock is? Is right twice a day, kind of thing, where it's like I'm the perma bear, I'm the one who always thinks the market's going to crash any moment. Right, there's no question. So, one guy is John Hussman, who I enjoy reading, super, super smart guy, became famous by being very bearish before the Great Recession. Of course, the market did drop, so he was right. He has generally, not always, but generally been very bearish since then, and it has not gone well. It's been tough. It's been a tough ten years if right. you're a bear. Yeah. So in November, he predicted that the S and P 500 during the next downturn is going to drop to below 1,000. Keep in mind that right now it's about 2,600. So he's talking for more than half. Right. Haircut. Yeah. Right. 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 So I don't know if that's going to be right. Yeah. Um, but there are those people, and there are people who um, still think inflation is going to go nuts. So I read a few predictions of where people think gold is going to go to five thousand dollars an ounce or something like. Right now, it's thirteen hundred. Oh, geez. but they have been saying that since the Great Recession because, as you may remember, with all the stimulus from the Fed, they were saying it's going to spark outrageous inflation, and the best place to be was is gold. And actually, gold since two thousand eleven is down, I don't know, fifty percent, oh. something like that. Um, so you certainly come across that, and I think it's a that is an important distinction as you read these things. But even with John Hussman, right? Like I he's obviously been wrong, but so much of his analysis is so enlightening because it brings so much uh, market history, 
So even if someone doesn't get the, the bottom line right, you can still learn a good bit from reading their analysis. Because in the end, you have to make some sort of prediction. And in, in, my, in your mind, there has to be that little bit of possibility, like, well, what if he's right? What if the market goes down and we did have the Great Recession at one point? We did have the Great Depression, where stocks went down 80%. There has to be that part in your mind that, that that could happen and have some portion of your portfolio that will do at least okay in that scenario. Yay, 2019! <laughs> it's going to be a great year! It is going to be a great year. It is going to be a great year, even if it's not a great year. Because we're all here together. We've got each other. Something like that? Because I love you guys. I really love Aww, you guys. That's so great, Slugger! <laughs> Thanks! Well, Happy New Year, bro. Happy New Year, Allison. Uh, that's the show. It's edited prog rocksticatingly by Rick Eggdahl. <laughs> prog rock. Get it? Okay. Uh, our email is answers at fool.com. Uh, if you want, you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Answers Podcast, and we're also on there individually. There's also a Facebook group you can join. Uh, it's a private Facebook group to keep out the trolls, so knock and you will be let in. It's uh, Motley Fool Podcast, I believe, is the group on Facebook. All right. Well, that's it, I think. Happy New Year, everybody. We've only said that like 20 <laughs> times in the show so far. <laughs> For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.